Well, it's great to see everybody, and it's good to be here once again to continue our study through this great uh, letter to the Galatians, and our title for our message today is Law and Grace, because that's really um, kind of the essence of what Paul is dealing with here. And as we come to the verses we just read, verses 21 through 31, it's we're kind of coming to the uh, you know, sort of the climactic moment of, of Paul's um, argument here for grace over law. And I, I have actually myself been excited about getting to this portion of the text because it's just so, it's so powerful. It's so beautiful the way uh, Paul just, you know, drives this, this point home here. And as we move on from this point, he's, he's going to go, you know, once again back and, and reference the issue uh, a few times before he completes the letter. But this is kind of the main final argument for grace uh, over law. But let me just remind you um, of the, the background, just kind of set the scene. You remember Paul uh, in the previous verses, he talks about his, his concern that his efforts among the Galatians might have been in vain. So, you know, at a, at a certain point, Paul just has to wonder, like, you know, did, it, did the gospel really take with them? Because they're, they're being led astray into this other thing that is not a gospel. They're being led astray into this, this legalistic system. And so he expresses concern about that. And then he went on to say that he felt that he was laboring in birth again until Christ would be formed in them. So he's not going to give up. He, he's not going to just leave it where it's at. He's going to labor through. He's going to, just like a woman bringing forth a child, he's going to keep uh, persevering uh, for them in, in presenting the truth to him, no doubt in praying for them. And then he said to them, you remember, and this is verse 20, right before we get to our passage for today, Paul says to them in verse 20, he said, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. And you can, you can almost sense the, the change of tone, even in what he writes there. You know, Paul's been very aggressive toward them in, in wanting to show them the, the folly of their position. So he said some, you know, pretty hard things. He began by referring to them as, as being foolish. But what he's saying now is he's saying, look, you know, kind of paraphrasing, he's saying, no, I, I want you to hear my tone. I want you to know that what I'm saying to you isn't, isn't born out of anger toward you. No, it's, it's born out of love. And as we come to verse 21, it seems to me that it's as though he looks at them with eyes full of compassion and he asks in the most concerned and tender way possible, he says to them, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Paul's like, look, don't you get this? You, you, don't, you don't want to go under the law. If you, if you understood the law, you would not 
be moving in this direction. But I, I, you just sense that it, it's, a, it's a moment of, of just great tenderness as he's just pleading with them to not continue in this direction. Now, he's already shown them from the law He's already shown them that there's a curse upon all those who break the law. And he, he showed them that from the, the writings of Moses, from Leviticus chapter, I think it's 29, where he quotes, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things in, that are written in the book of the law to do them. So he's already said that to them, but now he's going to use an incident in the life of Abraham to kind of finally, you know, drive the point home. Now, Paul has done this already. Paul has gone back beyond Moses to Abraham, and, and he's going to do it once again here. The, the Judaizers, the emphasis was on Moses. The emphasis was on the, the covenant at Sinai and all the different aspects of that. But Paul keeps taking them back to, uh, back to Abraham, showing that no, the, the relationship that we have uh, with God through Christ is that we, we need to understand that through God's dealings with Abraham. And so he takes us back to the life of Abraham and he speaks to us about um, the, the fact that Abraham had these two sons and that they are representative of the two covenants. So what he does is he sets forth his argument in three stages. First of all, there's the historical. Then secondly, there's the symbolic or the allegorical. And then thirdly, there's the personal. So we're, we're going to break the, the verses down like that. So first of all, the historical. So Paul says, for it is written, verse 22, that Abraham had two sons the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. So that's the historical. So Paul is referring back to the, um, the birth of uh, Ishmael and the birth of Isaac. So the, these are the two sons. In our Bible, you find the stories in uh, Genesis 16 and then in Genesis 21. And so in, in the story with um, Ishmael, what you have there is, remember, God had given Abraham this promise that he was going to be the heir of the world, as Paul would put it in another place, and that through him, all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. And this was going to come to the world through his descendants and primarily through one descendant. Uh, but then God had told him, you're going to have uh, children that are innumerable. They're going to be just, you can't count the stars in the heaven. You're not going to be able to count your children. You can't count the grains of sand on the seashore. You're not going to be able to count your children. But yet at this time, Abraham has no children. And the problem is he's getting old and his wife is getting old along with him. So as they are going along in life and as they're waiting for uh, God to fulfill his promise, and it just seems like there's, there's a huge delay, and they don't understand why, um, you know, the promises haven't been fulfilled, and they're not getting any younger. 
uh, Sarah comes up with the idea and she pitches it to Abraham that, um, and, and basically, even though she didn't say it this way, it was like, okay, obviously God needs us to help him out. So here's what I think we should do. So Sarah has this young uh, Egyptian uh, handmaiden, and her name is Hagar. And Sarah says to Abraham, let's do this. Let's, uh, you can have a relationship with her, and she will uh, you know, conceive, and then I will take the child after birth, and I will raise him, and this will be the way we will get a son. Now, uh, that was a, a, a perfectly normal thing in that culture. Because in that culture, what mattered more than anything else was that you had not just a child, but that you had a son. Because the son was the person that was going to perpetuate your name and, uh, you know, all of your, uh, everything was going to be passed on to the son and so forth. So, so that's what Sarah suggests. Abraham agrees and Hagar conceives and, and has a child and his name, or his, he is named Ishmael. And now it seems like, okay, great. Now we've got the, we've got the child that God you know, promised, and now we're going to just you know, take it from here and trust that God's going to fulfill his purpose in uh, a multitude of descendants and so forth. So then the Lord appears to Abraham and starts to talk to him about this son that he's going to give him. And Abraham's like, well, hey, Lord, no, it's okay. We got, we got the son, Ishmael. We, we've got him. And the Lord's, I'm paraphrasing all this, of course, the, the Lord's like, uh, no, that's not the son. Abraham says, oh, Lord, but let Ishmael live before you. And God says, no, this is not what I was talking about. You're going to have a son by Sarah. Now, the thing about this, of course, is that Abraham is 99 years old. And Sarah is like 89. And so this just seems impossible. But God says, no, you are going to have a son by Sarah. And as a matter of fact, this time next year, she will have brought forth your son. And so, of course, that does happen, as God said. And uh, Isaac is born. And then in chapter 21, we have the story of the... Uh, the weaning of Isaac. And in those days, when a child was weaned, there would be like a celebration, kind of a party uh, that was thrown for them. And as that was happening, uh, Ishmael, the older son now, as he's over maybe in the corner watching, he starts to mock Isaac. And Sarah sees this mockery. And she says to Abraham, she says, cast out the bondwoman and her son because he is not going to be heir with my son. And Abraham, of course, is heartbroken at this point. He thinks, no, I can't do that. I love Ishmael as well. But the Lord speaks to him and says, do it. She's right. Because he will not be uh, heirs with Isaac. And so uh, Ishmael is, uh, Abraham sends them away. God promises that he's going to bless Ishmael. But he says, but my covenant will be with Isaac. So that's the, that's the history behind the whole thing. But listen, here's what it says. And this is an important thing to note. It says that the one who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and he of the free woman through promise. Now, what does that mean? What it means is this, 
that Ishmael's birth was a natural birth. When it says he was born according to the flesh, it just means simply that he was born through natural processes. In other words, there was nothing uh, supernatural about it. There was no divine intervention. It was just what uh, was naturally produced by a man and a woman. But then regarding Isaac, it says this, that Isaac was born according to promise, which is a reference to the supernatural aspect of the birth of Isaac. So Isaac's birth is a miracle. There's no miracle involved with, uh, with the birth of Ishmael. It's, it's just all through the natural process. But Isaac, because Abraham is 100 or you know, 99, and, and Sarah is 89, there's no way this is going to naturally happen, that they're going to have a child. God has to intervene, and that's what the promise is about. And so Paul says that these two people and their experiences are representative of the two covenants. And so now he moves into the symbolic um, aspect of all of this or the allegorical, uh, you can say as well. He says, for these are the two covenants the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. So the two covenants, and remember, the two covenants are law and grace. And so Paul says, actually, these two people are representative of these two covenants, that these two sons with their mothers represent actually two religions. The one is a religion of bondage, which Paul obviously connects with Judaism, and the other is a religion of freedom, which is what we would call Christianity, which is what the gospel was about. So, so Paul says uh, there, there's an allegory here. Now, now, Paul was, a, uh, Paul was a rabbi, and this is a very rabbinical uh, way to approach a text. If you read rabbinical writings today, they're, they're available today. You can read what the ancient rabbis wrote, and you will find that they would many, many times, um, they would read things into the text that, that really weren't there. And... Uh, this was just a typical way for a rabbi to write. Now, Paul is not doing that, but it is, it kind of has a rabbinical flair to it because it's not obvious when you look back at the story that there's uh, a spiritual allegory, but Paul, through the spirit, looking back on the story, says, actually, there's a lesson here beyond the historical account. God's showing us through these two people, he's showing us the two covenants. Now, the two covenants... Let's talk about the two covenants for a second. I want to take a little bit of a diversion here from the topic and just take a minute, just because it comes up, to, to talk about the fact that, that our Bible is divided into two covenants. We know that, right? There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We commonly call it the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament was, is, 
and, and when we talk strictly about the covenant, we're talking more about the Mosaic covenant, but that was a covenant that was for a particular group of people, the nation of Israel, at a particular time in history and in a particular location, the land of Israel. And that covenant was a temporary covenant that lasted from the time of Moses at Sinai till the coming of Jesus the Messiah. When Jesus came, Jesus himself instituted a new covenant. So now, here we are, and for 2,000 years, the church has lived under the new covenant. Now, we believe that the Old Testament uh, is God's word as well. We believe that there's plenty of application for us, but we also recognize that there are certain aspects of the Old Covenant that do not have any application to us because they were those things were for that nation at that time and in that place. Now, this is why I'm saying this, because today in our current cultural situation, as you know, there's a, an increasing hostility toward the Christian faith. There's uh, accusations constantly being made uh, by people in the media and, and other places uh, how the Bible promotes things like genocide, and the Bible promotes things like slavery, and the Bible promotes, uh, you know, the stoning of, of people who are gay, and the Bible, uh, you know, uh, promotes the oppression of women, and, you know, you hear this kind of stuff all the time. And here's what we need to know for ourselves, and we need to also know this to be able to speak to people who say those things, that 99.9% .9 of the time, when somebody is talking about that sort of thing, their reference is to the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, you can't find any of those things that I just mentioned. You can't find any of that in the New Testament. And I like to remind people that, hey, listen, we, we've, that, that was done away with 2,000 years ago. You know, the church has never been under the Mosaic law, at least not intentionally or not as God intended. If the church has ever come under the law, like the Galatians were doing here, it was... It was wrong, and, and it was corrected. And so when we hear people today, now here's the problem. They just say, oh, well, you know, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that, and the Bible promotes this. We have to remind people, well, listen, the Bible has two covenants, and one of them was done away with 2,000 years ago. So I, I have even said to people, it's like, show me somewhere in the New Testament. That's what I, I want you to do. Show me somewhere in the New Testament to support your idea here that the Bible teaches genocide or it teaches oppression of women or whatever. And of, of course, you can't do that from the New Testament. But we're under the New Testament. And we need to remember that as believers so we can respond if the opportunity comes up. We might not be on a talk show being interviewed, but uh, you know, maybe somebody next to you at work is going to ask you that question, or maybe they're going to hear it, or they're going to read it somewhere, and they're going to say to you, oh, but you know, the Bible supports this or promotes that or whatever. So we need to be clear in our own minds that we're talking about two different covenants, and the one, and especially those aspects of it where there were... Uh, you know, the, the commandments to destroy or to, to, uh, to judge or to condemn, those were all under uh, a very uh, specific vision for a nation at a time. They were part of the national legislation and things like that. So let's, let's not forget that. There are two covenants 
and we are under the new covenant, and the new covenant is the covenant of grace. Now, as Paul says here, these are symbolic. So the message of Abraham's two sons and their mothers, uh, Hagar and Sarah, these are symbolic of the covenant of law and the covenant of grace. And there's a contrast between the lives of these two men, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, it's not so much their lives that's being talked about. It's, it's more their, their, the circumstances surrounding their, their births. So it's not like Ishmael in his life represents a certain type of religion and Isaac represents another in his life. No, Paul's point is going back to their birth. So the religion of Ishmael represents a religion uh, of nature. A religion of nature of what man can do by himself without any special intervention of God. And, and that's what happened, right, with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. We're going to help God out. So there was no dependence on God. There was no intervention by God. They, they were naturally going to bring about the fulfillment of the promise of God. But with Isaac, it's a different story. The religion of Isaac represents a religion of grace of what God has done and does, a religion of divine initiative and divine intervention, for Isaac was born supernaturally through a promise. And this is what Christianity is about. It is about grace or supernatural intervention or God's divine power versus anything that we could naturally come up with. Now, I keep referencing this almost on a weekly basis, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that what the Bible describes is in, in you know, becoming a Christian, it's describing something supernatural. It's describing something that you can't do for yourself. And I say that because, you know, there are people all across the country sitting in churches today who still think that Christianity is something that you basically lay hold of by doing good deeds or by not being a certain kind of person or something like that, that that's how you are a Christian, that's how you maintain your Christian life, and that's how you're going to be justified in the end. It's because you put forth your best effort to be the best person that you could. A lot of people think that that's Christianity still today, but it's not. There's no supernatural component in that. It really just comes down to things like, well, you know, your temperament maybe, or your family background, your upbringing, you know, all of the things that pertain to just the natural experience. But the Christian life, being a Christian is a supernatural thing that occurs in one's life, just like the birth of Isaac was a supernatural thing. Isaac is not going to be born unless God moves upon an 89-year-old woman and a 99-year-old man. It's not going to happen apart from the intervention of God. And likewise, you will never be a Christian apart from the intervention of God. 
You cannot make yourself a Christian. Nobody can make you a Christian by pronouncing some sort of a you know, blessing over you. You are now a Christian, my son. It doesn't happen that way. God, it's a thing that God does. It's a supernatural thing. You know, people say that, um, well, you know, there's, there's no proof for God. Give me some empirical evidence for God. You know what? There is proof for God. And I'll tell you what it is. There's empirical evidence. I know people whose lives are unexplainable apart from a God. You cannot explain how this person went from being this to being now this without a miracle. It is a miraculous thing. I was at a, a retreat yesterday. I'll tell you a little bit more about it later. But I was, I was at a retreat yesterday. I was in a room full of men who were former gang members, guys who spent uh, decades in prison, um, you know, drug addicts, drug dealers, killers. I mean, the truth, I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly who the, the audience was. And I felt so amazingly comfortable and at peace, knowing I was in the room of a bunch of murderers with no fear whatsoever. Why? Because a miracle had taken place. God had changed these guys' lives. So, but that's what we're talking about here. That's obviously kind of an extreme uh, example of it, but that's, that's what we're talking about. And that's what Paul is talking about. And that's what happened to the Galatians. The Galatians were, were sinners. They were idol worshipers. They were engaged in all of the, the, the sin and the evil and the perversion of the world that they lived in. That's who they were. But then the gospel comes to them and the gospel brings this, this power, the supernatural thing that transforms their lives. But the problem is now the Judaizers are coming along, the false teachers, and they're trying to convince the Galatians that, well, that's not really enough. You need to add this law as well. And this has just thrown a wrench into the whole thing. And Paul is deeply concerned over that. But then he takes it to the personal level having looked at it historically, allegorically. Now we, we come to the personal and in verse 28, he says, now we brethren, and this is where he, he makes the personal application, but verse 27, I just want to read it and then we're going to come back to it in a moment. But verse 27, he says this in 26, but Jerusalem above is free. He's speaking about the heavenly Jerusalem versus the, um, the Jerusalem, the, the literal uh, city of Jerusalem at the time. Paul says Jerusalem at the time, at his time, was like Hagar in bondage with her children. It, it, was, uh, it was Judaism, Mount Sinai. The whole thing was wrapped up in the law. But then Paul talked about a, a Jerusalem that's above, and he's speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. And he says, the Jerusalem above is free, and that is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who do not, who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. We'll come back to that. But verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. 
So when he says children of promise, he's talking about the supernatural. We're like Isaac, not Ishmael. Our lives now have been transformed by the, the power of God, by the gospel of Christ, by the grace of God. He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We're not like Ishmael. Ishmael was the, he was what you could do for yourself. This is what Abraham and Hagar could produce. But Paul says, we're not that. We are the children of promise like Isaac, emphasizing the, the reality of this, this supernatural thing that's happened, this new birth, through the power of God's grace. But then he says this, he says, but as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So going back to the story, remember, Ishmael mocked Isaac and Sarah said, cast out the bondwoman and her son. And that's indeed what God had said to Abraham to do. And he did. But the, the point here, Paul is saying to the Galatians, look, this attempt on the part of the, the Judaizers toward you is a form of persecution. They're not they're not going to let you rest in the grace of God. They're going to try to force you into embracing a, a legalistic understanding of your relationship with God. It's a form of, of persecution. Paul, of course, knew this persecution. And as you study the, the book of Acts or as you study the epistles of Paul, you find that he was, um, he was harassed and he was... Um, beaten, and he was stoned, and he was imprisoned, and all of these things happened in Paul's life. And you know, behind it, almost all the time, was this this uh, Jewish component, this this element of these these legalistic guys who were stirring up the trouble against Paul. They were persecuting him because that's what happens. You know. When you experience the free grace of God and you start to rejoice in the free grace of God, you know what happens? The legalists come after you. They, they don't like it. The devil doesn't want you free. He doesn't want you as, a, as like a free um, person who's full of joy and peace and, and all of that. He doesn't want that kind of promotion for the kingdom. He wants you to be oppressed. He wants you to be beaten down. He wants you to not be sure of your salvation. He wants you to be living under this, this tyranny and, you know, just, oh gosh, being a Christian so hard. It's so rough. I don't even know if I'm going to make it to heaven. Man, the devil loves that because you're like a bad advertisement for the kingdom. And he, he really likes that. And you know, this is religion. Religion is man's attempt to find God. And so often it's those who have that understanding, like I'm going to find God. I'm going to, I'm going to make my way to God. They're the ones that so often are, are persecuting those who are saying, no, we, we just come to God through faith in Christ. But, you know, here's the sad and the more challenging thing even, that a lot of times this kind of mentality drifts into churches now, when Paul left Galatia, I'm sure of this. I'm sure when he left Galatia, he left, you know, just 
kind of just, you know, jumping up and clicking his heels, just thinking, man, what a beautiful thing. What a great work God is doing here. He left a place that was full of love. He left a place that there was wonderful fellowship. He left the kind of environment where sinners were coming in and they were just knowing, man, you know, they were welcome. He left a place where he knew that the grace of God was reigning over this place and that the spirit of God was moving. That's what he left when he left Galatia. But you know what he found out later? That when these Judaizers came down, all of that left. When they brought the law in, man, oh, it just changed the whole atmosphere. And this is what happens. When you introduce legalism into your life, and especially when you introduce legalism into the life of a church, you quench the spirit. And in quenching the Spirit, all of those wonderful fruits of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, all that stuff, boom, it's just out the window. And now it's all just about laws. And it's all about finger pointing. And it's all about judging. And it's all about criticizing. And it's just, it goes from a beautiful thing to a really ugly thing. And, and we have to fight this. And of course, this is what Jesus battled against. Remember, as you read the Gospels, the, the enemies of Jesus were not really the, the openly sinful people in the society. They were not the enemies of Jesus. They were the ones that were the most open to the message of Jesus. They were the ones that were like, really, I can be forgiven? Oh, okay. I would have never thought so, but this is wonderful. It was the self-righteous religious guys. They were the enemies. They were the ones who were dead set against this idea that God was going to freely forgive sinners. They fought that. They pushed it back against it. They criticized Jesus. They said to his disciples, he said, what is with your master? Look at him. What is he doing eating with the tax collectors and sinners? How dare he do that? And they saw themselves as being righteous and better than everybody. So Jesus fought against it. Paul fights against it his whole, uh, his whole ministry life. And my point is this. You know what? We still have to fight against it today. Because legalism is always looking for an inroad. Legalism is always looking for a way into our own lives personally in order to, to quench the spirit and bring us into this oppressive sort of a bondage thing. And then it's, it's looking to yeah, make its way into a congregation as well so that people can't walk in the door and feel like God's uh, mercy is waiting for them. They, they just say, man, I, you know, I, I better stay away. Have you ever heard a person say this? You, you invite them to church. They say, man, I can't go to church. You know, I'm afraid the, the roof would cave in, you know, if I walked in. So what are they saying? They're, they're really saying, you know, I, they're kind of acknowledging that they're sinful. And in their mind, they're thinking the church is only for good people. Well, that's what legalism leads to. It, it gives you the mentality that the church is for good people. But the biblical picture of the church is that it's a, it's a wide open thing for those. No, the roof's not going to fall in on you because this is what the church is actually all about. It's just, a it's just a bunch of sinners saved by grace. But if we forget that, and if we drift into a legalistic Understanding, and what do I mean by legalism? What I mean is this. When we take and put something, impose something that goes beyond the scripture on somebody for, uh, for them to be you know, right with God, that's when we cross over into legalism. So legalism is adding things 
making it more hard than God has made it or making the, the standard higher than God has made it. That's what legalism is. And this happens. You know, this is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees in the earliest stages, they were well-intended. You know what their, their whole objective was? Their whole objective was, you know, we want to keep people from breaking the law. So how do we keep them from breaking the law? Well, here's what we will do. We will come up with another set of laws that actually become a hedge around the real law. So before you can get the real law and break it, you'd have to break this law here. But you know what ended up happening? That law superseded and became the focal point of the religion rather than the actual law of God. And this is why when you read the Gospels, you find that there's accusation after accusation of Jesus breaking the law. You know what? Jesus was not breaking God's law. He was breaking their law. He was saying, no, I'm not bound to your law. And just like the Pharisees did that, we can do that in the church today. We can put up standards and we can put up things and we can make uh, a big deal about doctrines and, and take them and uh, go beyond the emphasis that the scripture puts on them. And then we can make that a requirement for blessing. We can make it a requirement for having, you know, the, the real favor of God upon your life. Now, you know, if I know you believe in Jesus and that's fine, but if you really want to know God's blessing, his power and his love here, you know, make sure that you do this or don't do that. That that's legalism. And so this is the thing that will quench the spirit. This is the thing that, that inevitably kills the work of God. Paul says here in verse 31, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. God wants us to be free. And Paul's going to go on in the rest of the letter. He's going to come back and touch on this again to some extent, but he's sort of moving on uh, from the main argument. But he's going to remind us that freedom, he says, you, God, you know, God has made us free, not so we could use our freedom as a cloak for sin. You know, some people think when we're talking about grace and not being legalistic, that we're talking about, hey, let's just party it up. Let's just live in sin. Whoa, it's okay. You know, we're not legalistic. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the, the work of the Spirit and letting God's Word do His work in our lives and letting God speak to us and letting God convict us. You know, I was I'll give you an example, and I, I said this last service, and somebody responded afterwards, and that's why I want to say it again. So just, just so you know, just for the record, I don't drink alcohol. But at the same time, I do not believe the Bible prohibits Christians from drinking alcohol. I am crystal clear on the fact that the Bible says you are not to be drunk. There's no question about that. Uh, Ephesians 5.18, you know, it makes it crystal clear. But uh, there are some people that I know that insist that, you know, if, you, if you're drinking alcohol, well, you know, that, that you're somehow compromised, or you're somehow in sin, or you're somehow a lesser Christian. And even though you point out, look, um, seems like Jesus drank. I mean, you know, there's references in the Bible to him doing that. And he actually, actually made some wine on one occasion, you know. Uh, John chapter 2, he's at a wedding feast. They run out of wine. He takes these six water pots of stone and he turns them into wine. So it's hard for me to reconcile all of those things with this, uh, you know, this rigid idea that you, you can't drink. So 
but they say, oh, well, you know, I know that, you know, they might even concede, well, I know that, but we have to make sure that we protect people from, you know, alcoholism and so forth. So, you know, we put the standard up. Well, you know, isn't that what the Pharisees did? We have to make sure nobody breaks the law. So let's put this other law here. So anyway, this guy comes up to me after service, last service, and he says, so he tells me a story. He says, you know, he says, I haven't, you know, didn't, didn't drink for years. And we recently told me, he went back home. He's from another country. He went there and he sat down and he had a glass of wine, which ended up being a bottle of wine. He said, you know, he wasn't drunk. But at the end, he realized he didn't really have the control that he should have. So he realized that, you know, this is something that he just needed to stay away from. And I said, absolutely, I agree with you. That's what God's showing you. And he said, but I also realize that I can't impose that on somebody else. Or I can't judge somebody else who doesn't have that same conviction and consider them less than me or perhaps, you know, maybe slightly sinful because they have the freedom to do that. You see, legalism just puts down these rigid, hard rules and basically says, you know, you, you live up to this standard or you're not going to experience God's blessing. This is the kind of thing that we've been set free from. You know, God is perfectly capable of dealing with us about stuff. That's why there's a Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes people, you know, write me or say things to me and, you know, they're, I don't know. It's like, I just want to say, now, did the Holy Spirit go on vacation and ask you to fill in for him? I mean, you know, why are you saying this to me? <laughs> Seriously. I, I think I can hear God speak to me. I've been doing it for a long time, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm still hearing God speak to me. So if God wants to speak to me, I am completely open. But, you know, I don't want your legalistic interpretation being imposed on me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give in to that. God has called us to freedom. And that is one of the wonderful beauties. And this again, I mean, if you want bondage, just go get into a religion because every religion in the world is about bondage of one sort or another. It's only the gospel that is about freedom. That's what the gospel is. It's about freedom. It's a freedom to not do. It's a freedom to do. It's both. In some cases, we're free to do things that we didn't think we could do. In other cases, we've got a freedom not to do it as well. But it's about freedom, and that's what Paul is wanting the Galatians to know, because they were free, and now they've put themselves back in bondage, and they've created now an environment. In verse 15 of chapter 5, this is the environment that they created, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. When you get into legalism, you just create all kinds of strife and contention and criticism and all of that kind of stuff, and you also send a big message, no sinners allowed. That's the message that you send. Now, in closing, and this is going to be a long closing, so just to let you know. <laughs> but I said I was going to come back to um, verse 27. And I want to do that right here. So verse 27, Paul here quotes from Isaiah. Isaiah 54, verse 1. He says, For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. 
I want to quote to you from Timothy Keller's uh, Galatians commentary on this passage and, and listen to what he says. And then I want to uh, springboard off of that into my last point. So he said this, he said, the prophecy of Isaiah looks back to Genesis 16. We looked at that earlier in which God looks down on two women, one beautiful and fertile. That would be Hagar. The other barren and old, of course, that would be Sarah. And he chooses to save the world through the barren one. And through her family would come another unlikely son born to another woman who could have no expectation of being pregnant, not because she was barren, but because she was a virgin. And through that son, all the peoples of the world would be blessed just as God promised Abraham and Sarah. That is how God's grace works. Now, Paul takes up the same story that Isaiah used, and he gives it an even more full and wonderful application. The Galatians are being beat up spiritually by the false teachers. They are being told that they are too polluted and flawed simply to consider themselves loved children of God the moment they believe. But now Paul turns the tables and comforts the Galatians powerfully. They are the barren woman. If salvation is by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only the morally able and strong, the people from good families, the folk with good records can be spiritually fruitful, enjoy the love and joy of God, and transform the lives of others. But if the gospel is true, it does not matter, listen, who you are or who you were. You may be a spiritual and moral outcast, as marginal as the single barren woman was in those ancient days. It does not matter. You will bear fruit, the kind of fruit that lasts. The gospel says grace is not just for the fertile Hagar's, but for the barren Sarah's. If Sarah can have a future, anyone can. You see, that's the gospel. The gospel says there's nobody that's beyond the, the, the reach of God's grace. And even, and listen, it says that to those on the outside. There's nobody even beyond the reach of God's grace. Everybody's invited to come. But you know what it also says? It also says to those among us, who fall and stumble, that there's, there's, there's no need to despair, that you can't get back up and, and move forward again. God's grace will enable you to do that. You know, sometimes we understand, well, I, I know God's grace and I experienced his grace and I came to him, but then I, you know, then I fell away or I fell into sin or something and, you know, I just, I knew better and I did it anyway and, and now I just think, you know, there's, there's no grace for me. People think that way. There's grace for you still. That's the beauty of grace. It's not exhausted. It, it, it doesn't run out. As we genuinely seek it, it's there. It's available. And that's the beauty of this picture here. Here's, you know, a, a desolate, barren woman that Isaiah is referring to, going back to the situation with Sarah. But he says, you know, in the end, uh, she will have more children than the one with a husband. And God can take any life that will just genuinely receive his grace and he can cause an abundance of fruit to come forth from it. And that takes me back to what I was saying about the, uh, the group of people that I was with yesterday. 
And I look at this group and I see, wow, these are the outcasts. These are the people, listen, these are the people that people in churches everywhere would already in their minds have decided that these are the, the unsavables. These are the ones that could never bear fruit. But, it, but it's just not true. As I was sitting there yesterday, I saw a, a guy walk in, an older guy, he's probably my age. And um, my friend turned to me and said, hey, you see that guy? Yeah, I see him. I kind of, you know, noticed him when he walked in. He said he just spent 20 year, 26 years in the penitentiary. He just came out. And I said, wow, amazing. And then he said, and also, he said, you know, so-and-so, and we, we have a mutual friend that we know who was, who spent 40 years in the state, federal penitentiaries, uh, was a hitman. And he said, he said, so, so-and-so, I'm not saying his name intentionally. He said, so-and-so put a hit on this guy back in the 80s. And obviously, he didn't follow through with it because the guy's still alive. He said, those guys are getting together regularly and having Bible studies together now. And it's like, wow. Okay. This is, this is the kind of stuff that, like I said, you want empirical evidence for the existence of God? I'll take you down, let you meet some people. And uh, if you can figure out how they have become what they are without a God, then you're much more brilliant than I am. Uh, you know, this is grace. This is what God's grace does. And these guys uh, are pastoring churches and they're bearing fruit and there's children being produced in the sense, you know, spiritually because of the grace of God that's come to them. And so just like it seemed that the barren woman would never, how could a barren woman ever bear children? Well, this is what the grace of God does. The grace of God. This is the business of God's grace to step in to the natural and to do what can never be done with all of the best efforts of human beings. It's a supernatural thing. It's the power of the gospel. It's what salvation is about through Christ. This is what it's about. And Paul wants those Galatians to, to just understand, look, no, the law will kill everything. It, it'll just bring you back into bondage. And you will never go anywhere. You'll never progress. Stay away from the law. The, the, this, is like, this is like Hagar and her son. And what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman. There's no place for this kind of bondage and legalism because under it, we will just be stopped dead in our tracks. There will be no fruit that comes from it. And so we want to continue to stand in the freedom. Brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are free. You know, just be free in Christ. And let the Spirit guide your life and be in God's Word and let God's Word inform you and instruct you and transform you and do all of those things. And, and you know, let, just let the Lord work and... There are going to be people, you know, like they say, the haters are going to hate and the legalists are going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to squawk and they're going to make noise and they're going, you shouldn't do that. You can't do that. What are you doing? And, you know, and, 
it's just like, hey, we're, we're walking in the grace of God. That's what we're doing. And you know, here's the thing. Generally, if we are legalistic, it's because we've lost sight, not just of the grace of God in general, we've lost sight of our own need for the grace of God. That's what happens. We forget, or maybe we just don't think that we were as bad as we actually are. If I keep forever in my mind my own need for grace, you know what that's going to do? It's going gonna, it's gonna to lend itself to me being gracious toward others. So if I'm not gracious, if I'm critical, if I'm condemning, if I'm self-righteous, if I'm judgmental, then I got to go back and ask myself, wait a second, what about myself? And what if I applied my standard to other people? Jesus reminded us of that. He said, you know, with, what, with the measure you, you measure things, it's going to be measured back to you. In other words, the standard that you judge everybody by, guess what? That's a standard you'll be judged by as well. Let's live in grace. Let's bask in grace. Let's grow in grace. Let's walk in grace. Let's share God's grace. So Lord, thank you for the fact that we are children, not of the bondwoman, but of the free. And oh Lord, help us to maintain that beautiful freedom that you've given to us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you call us out of bondage, out of bondage to sin and also out of bondage to religion into a whole different place where we walk with you and we know the beautiful freedom of your love and of your grace. So, Lord, work that deeply into our lives. And Lord, may we as people, as individual believers, may we as a, a body collectively, may we as a, as a congregation, may we live and walk and breathe in grace. And Lord, may many children be produced. Lord, may much fruit come. May many be drawn and know that your grace is there for them to forgive and to renew and to bless. In Jesus' name, amen.